Energy prices go up, you have more inflation, you have more inflation, you have more higher interest rates, you have higher interest rates. The government's under pressure, right? Like their own cost of debt is going up, and therefore, how do they subsidize the transition? Hello, and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we turn to energy security and energy markets with leading expert Christiane Malik. Christiane is a Managing Director and Global Head of Energy Strategy for JP Morgan and Head of EMEA Oil and Gas Equity Research. Christiane and his team at JP Morgan have been consistently ranked by institutional investor in European exploration and production and oilfield services, achieving the first place rank four years in a row in both the developed Europe and emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa categories. Christiane himself is also ranked as the top rated global energy analyst in the individual category. Christiane is joined by Joseph Mikett, Director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program here at CSIS, for a wide-ranging discussion on the future of energy markets, barriers and opportunities for investment, how to provide consistent energy security, and grow the global energy system. I'll turn it over to Joseph now for the full conversation. Christiane, welcome to Energy 360. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to speak with you. I, I read the JPM Global Energy Outlook over the summer, and I, you and I have talked a few times in different forums, so it's really great to have you on the podcast. I want to start at the big picture, right? You look at the whole energy system as an analyst. Yeah, and sure. Like this year, over the summer, IEA announced this benchmark finding. For the first time, solar investment is now larger than investment in oil production, both hovering just under $400 billion a year, according to EIA estimates. How do you think about that data point? Like, how do you think about inflection points in energy finance as we look forward to a low carbon future, but we're trying to maintain security today? That's a great question, Joe, and it's a good 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 place to start, particularly with IEA and other references. I mean, in, you mentioned the energy outlook, and thank you for your for, for your kind words. Uh, we, we've had a lot of interest in sort of reviewing the way we think about the energy outlook. And, and I would say reviewing, but more like articulating it in the context of these four axes, one being energy energy generation, which we typically think is just the generation of oil, gas, renewables. You don't have to generate sun, but you clearly have to, or wind, but you clearly have to uh, ensure that you can, you can process that into electrons. And that's the one axis. And the second axis is energy systems, which is everything to do with getting those jewels, which we'll talk about later, to the consumer. It's grids, storage, pipelines, infrastructure, obviously depends on the on the jewel or the fuel, right? It's different for wind in terms of versus hydrocarbons. And the other two axes is, is policy and time. Uh, and the reason why we reference those two is because it takes a lot longer than we think to deliver or to sort of decarbonize the energy systems and energy generation. And equally, policy is not universal by fuel. Or by jewel. Mm. Very different if you're talking wind versus oil. Now, with all that in mind, and just to get back to your question, investments in the solar and, and wind for that matter, generation capacities are important, but but it's just not enough. Yeah. And I'll qualify what I mean. There are two main issues. Firstly, as the share of renewables in the power mix increases, you naturally face issues of intermittency. The sun doesn't shine, particularly for the UK, uh, and wind doesn't blow all the time. Now, I know that's the obvious, but the systems need alternative generation capacities when the renewable generation is low. No wind, right. no sun. Now, as we've outlined in the energy outlook, this role will need to be played by natural gas until 
viable storage capacities such as batteries are developed at scale. Right. Secondly, and I referenced this, uh, is the energy systems. And, and this is where, I guess, the new work we've done sort of reveals the challenge lies in delivering rather than generating the needed jewels to the end consumer. I was talking to a friend last night and they're saying, oh, you know, you plug, you put your plug into the, the, the socket and you think that's clean energy, it's just electricity. That literally comes from jewels. Those jewels can take a wide variety of fuels, but the bottom line is you need to get it to that consumer, to that socket. And I think there are a couple of key drivers behind that. And I'll be brief. First of all, electrification of society requires significant investment in the storage, as I mentioned, and also grid technologies and access to materials. We, we need we need stuff to build it with. Now, as policy towards cleaner energy accelerates and a greater focus shifts to the electrification of society, key technologies and materials that enable these goals will fast emerge as the rate determining step. They will be on a critical path. Not how much mm. wind we have, not how much sun we have. It's it's getting those jewels to the consumer. How? Well, we need a substantial upgrade of grid capacity and technology. And put simply, yeah. we need bigger grids, which require more cables and consequently more metals, especially copper, which is already in a tight supply-demand balance. So going back to the point about the storage and intermittency, electrification and renewables requires investments in longer and shorter duration energy storage, such as batteries. And right. um, we'll talk about this later, uh, I hope a significant increase in mining and the processing of key materials and minerals. Now, I also mentioned policy, and I'll round off here. Policy decisions are moving much faster than the evolution of the longer lead energy system. In other words, we can generate so much energy, but it's the system that's failing the generation, and it's the policy that's not conducive because they're, very, they're focused on one particular jewel. And as I've talked, that, that 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 needs to support the acceleration and growth of installed energy generation. And what you see through policies, onerous planning, approval processes, bottlenecks around grid infrastructure, and access and distribution and storage of more right. intermittent supplies. And lastly, I just actually remembered this because it's coming up a lot in the headlines. So it's worth mentioning supply challenges, underlying yeah. costs to prepare the energy system. We've seen a lot of the the renewables companies profit warned simply because they can't deliver these projects which were aggressively slated um, over a number of years and also you look at china that's producing processing and manufacturing all the key minerals and materials we're trying to move away from that so right. comparable costs of such materials and components tend to be substantially higher in the us and europe an example europe and us solar factories come around four times more expensive than china in, in sort of, you know, dollar per gigawatt terms. You know, that intersection and, and, and interaction between time, policy, system, and generation is mm. really interesting. So I'm going to order what I think are like the long lead You're days. You're going to try to wait and, it. <laughs> and you, you, you score me, okay? Sure, sure. So on the longest term, some of the stuff that we know we need for net zero just feels very far away. Example right. here is like an international market in hydrogen or an energy carrier that's mm -hmm. downstream in hydrogen. That's because mm -hmm. like we're going to need pipeline infrastructure. We're going to need maybe ships to do that, depending on the what markets. We don't really know what the trade rules will be. That's a that's a long ways away. Agreed. Then you've got the sort of like decadal, you know, you, you could basket in there fusion. You could basket in a bunch of stuff. Then you've got the sort of decadal stuff. This is stuff we kind of know we need, but it just takes a long time to go from project ideation to production, mines, right. transmission lines, 
you could say LNG facilities, though that seems more export than import. Import seems like you can you can build regasification capacity really quickly. Europe just did. And then you've got the sort of like the stuff that sits under a decade. You know, after the IRA, we're building a bunch of gigafactories in the U.S. If you want to develop a solar field, once you can interconnect, that's a relatively short process at this point. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about these kind of like, you know, to return to the question, one, I wonder what you think about the ordering and what I may have missed. But when you think about this question of like, is is comparing investment flows like the right metric for us to think about progress and its transition? We need to be thinking about not just in solar, it's like that whole upstream supply chain to some extent, no? I totally agree. And in one of our reports, we looked at the energy outlook. We called it follow the money. Right. And having a, a services background, that's what I did. I had to look at the projects, you know, which ones are being sanctioned, why they're not being sanctioned. And I think when you zoom out and take a step away from just the jewels, the fuels, it's What's the cost of debt? Higher interest rates make it harder to access capital. Not, not necessarily because right. you can't, it's just more expensive. And mm-hmm. you've seen several of the clean energy companies, not we're talking about supply chain issues and all sorts, but, but actually the big before and after in the clean energy world is low interest rates, high interest rates. The, the returns aren't that great. So when interest rates go up, that makes a big difference in whether this makes money for you. Forget whether it's policy driven. One of the things I think about when I kind of read like the economic case of transition or mm. you're sort of switching a system that is relatively lower from a system, which is relatively lower capital expenditure, but has fuel costs. So it has an mm-hmm. operational expenditure to one that has higher capital costs than operational costs. Right. Once sure. you build a wind farm, maintenance is relatively easy. Right. And that actually that transition is a lot more economically saleable in a low interest rate environment than a high interest rate environment. Right. So now that we seem to be exiting a decade and a half of very, very low interest rates, what kind of implications do you think that has for the outlook? It would, this is simply that if we look back at how we access that capital, it's going to be banks, it's going to be the financial markets. And if they're seeing a deteriorating return and then yeah. compounded by the fact that you see subsidies removed. And there's a bit of a circular here, right? I mean, if energy prices go up, you have more inflation, you have more inflation, you have more higher interest rates, you have higher interest rates, the government's under pressure, right? Like their own cost of debt is going up. And therefore, how do they subsidize the transition? I mean, that, that that's a I call sort of, sort of vicious spiral in some ways. But with that in mind, as interest rates go up, you know, through this sort of energy inflation that we, we talk to, that will make it more difficult to justify the returns if they're falling. And then the, the risk you have as well as then project delays and execution. In my world, when I spent 10 years looking at the services, I mean, oh my God, like the, the amount of execution problems you know, that you see, you know, supply chain problems, that could then destroy the profit margins of these projects. So, so we need to really address he- head on the risk to the downside of those sort of clean jewels, so to speak, both in terms of how they're generated but equally, how we then deliver it to the consumer if you're thinking full cycle, like from beginning right. to end. So that's a it's a really interesting thing. So, you know, what I think of as a policy entrepreneur, okay, well, what do we do? Right. Yeah. And in the US, we were talking a lot in the post-IRA world about permitting reform. Mm-hmm. And there is this sort of like ethereal understanding that permitting reform is a drag on capital because it's if you have a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. in your offshore wind farm and whether or not you're going to be able to build it and deliver it on time, that really does affect your finance picture. Mm-hmm. Higher financing rates make that yet worse, right? 
you know, in your view, kind of like you look at permitting, you look at the upstream supply chain for clean energy. So mines and materials. Can we work in these other areas such that the broader macroeconomic conditions can kind of be smoothed out by by a very permissive environment for investment otherwise? Yeah, well, I mean, we we it's 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 interesting because let's put some numbers behind this, right? So we we we've done a lot of work trying to quantify what's needed in terms of capex investments. Yeah, maybe just zoom out. The kind of one of the key takeaways that we do have an energy deficit going to twenty thirty. You know, in terms of modeling demand growth versus supply growth. So we said, well, okay, well, how do we close this deficit? You know, what's it going to cost? Is it generation? Is it systems? What are the reaction functions we need from policy? And to simplify it, we calculated that the in order to close this deficit, this shortfall by 2013 energy, we're going to need roughly $1.3 trillion incrementally. And that shortfall mm-hmm. is equivalent to around 5 to 6% of global energy industry capex. Now, the va- yeah. now, what's interesting, Joe, is the vast majority of this, about $1.1 trillion, is in power generation, delivery, and especially in renewables power. And this includes investments in systems like grids and storages. Now, obviously, inflationary pressures don't help, whether it be underlying supply chain issues or higher interest rates, right? Because you have to borrow money, so that dollar gets more expensive. And we've estimated that inflation in 22 to 23 has been around between somewhere between high single digits across renewable supply chains. It might come down depending on the type and component, but this has solely contributed roughly about a $100 billion increase in that CapEx shortfall. In other words, a year ago, it was close to 1.1 to 1.2. It's gone to 1.3. So you see the trend here. So you have a deficit yeah. and it's getting more expensive to close that deficit. So it sort of comes back to your earlier point. Now, the remainder of the CapEx shortfall is oil and gas investments. And capital availability for fossil fuels have, have, have already been tight. Uh, we've talked about higher interest rates more, making more expensive, but it's not just higher interest rates. I mean, oil and gas is more difficult if you think about it from accessing financing as a whole because it's oil and gas. So you've got a high mm. cost of debt and equity capital. And those are the challenges in oil and gas investments. And, 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 and I sort of want to highlight it's not just about the access to capital markets, but it also includes, for example, societal demands for change, pushing investment preferences for oil companies to new energies, right? right. Secondly, shareholder requirements for higher returns. The right. sector is returning 30% of its market cap. I mean, that's unheard of. Why? Because their cost of equity side. People want more money from these companies, either because they're worried about peak demand, or they say, well, you're an energy company. I, I want more from you. I'm going to right. justify investing, right? And that's what I mean by the high cost of equity. And then thirdly, uh-huh. an, an uncertain regulatory outlook. It's very varied. I mean, look at take the UK for example. It's moving. You know, you, the gold clubs keep shifting. You don't know are they pro, are they against. So all this does, if you put this together, is limit upstream investments, which we think is still needed in this decade to close that deficit. And we have been flagging under investments in the energy sector for for a number of years. We initiated the super cycle thesis in 2020 that talked about oil specifically, in that we're going to be in mm-hmm. a multi-year, potentially multi-decade run in, in 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 oil, which sort of sounds very bullish and promotional, but the reality is what we're saying is we could risk being short oil before we no longer need it. And that supply-demand right. gap that arises from upstream investments, in some ways, if you then take it, if you, if you, you can zoom out, if you have an energy deficit, you can't close those jewels because you can't get those jewels to the consumer, no matter how much wind and renewables is available. You then right. have higher interest rates, more harder to access capital, then with all the best intentions in the world, you're still unfortunately left with a deficit. But if we can't close that with the traditional fuels, the old economy fuels, 
because we've sort of abandoned it. Right. The analysis tells us that we could see severe price inflation and clearly a lot of volatility because policy keeps changing and therefore people don't invest and then they invest and so on. So this brings me actually to a to a refinement question that I'd love your thoughts on. And, mm-hmm. and it's, a, it's a question about thinking about things in the units of jewels. Right. You're looking at this big global picture. How substitutable are these jewels, right? It's like the economic case, the price sensitivity mm-hmm. of driving a car around London is very different from turning a light on in Malawi or sure, sure. running a heat pump in Scandinavia. So what is your view on on distribution, right? Mm-hmm. I, I I totally take the point. We're sort of, I think because there's massive uncertainty, we're sort of under-investing a little bit everywhere. Yeah, but and you're saying is it's, easy, it's easier to charge your EV car in, in, let's say, Boston as opposed to Congo, right? Middle of Congo. It's, it's hard. Yeah, to, how do you access so. that? How do you access the energy? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and what's the, and, and how do you, when you think about, okay, well, we're going to fix this with investments in distribution or in generation, what's the distribution of those investments mm-hmm. in between developed markets, emerging markets? Where do you expect that to see that demand growth? And what can policymakers think about doing about it? Well, what's interesting when we did the work on energy demand growth, you know, what we found is that EM is a very important driver of energy demand growth for this decade. In fact, in our outlook, we estimate that energy demand in OECD, and I don't like to call it OECD, but let's just gem- you know, just to keep it easy in buckets, yep. OECD right. economies actually decreases by about 2% by 2030. But this is way, offset way more by the 20, 22% increase in emerging markets. And what you have here is that rising energy demand in EM is driving both, clearly been by rising populations and rising right. energy use per capita. But we have to also understand, appreciate that, that they haven't, so, some of them don't have any access to energy at all. 80% of the world hasn't mm-hmm. been on a plane, right? So, so, yeah. so, so, so as they're looking to have lights on the streets when they go to work every day or be able to go further out in terms of travel, uh, this is all going to take energy consumption from, if you like, kind of a zero to one, right? So, right. And that, for a comparison, energy use per capita in India is about 11 times less than in the US and four times less than China. And of course, that gap will narrow. In energy use per capita, you know in, in, that was sort of reference to 2022. And from an absolute term, it's worth mentioning, you know, China's consuming 112 gigajoules, US 284 gigajoules, India 26 gigajoules. So you can see that there's still a huge amount of potential upside in terms of these countries' cons- consumption. And so, if I then think about that in the context of a question around distributions. My concern is we're over-penetrating, we're going very long energy systems in the West, right? Which is great. My concern is that whereas all the demand growth of energy or the majority is coming from the East and we haven't delivered those systems. So it's sort of horses for courses. So we can end up potentially in equilibrium in energy supply demand in the West, but with a huge deficit in the East, Right. Simply because they're short systems. They don't have the capital, the investments, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going through a massive a penetration of energy consumption that was equivalent to the West 50 years ago. Right. Right. Um, so you see it, so it's like it's sort of out of sync yeah. in some ways. And then what will happen? And that's sort of essentially where those deficits in energy come from. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, it's really interesting. I mean, th- this is also a place where it seems like this is a problem a lot of people identify using slightly different language, right? Mm-hmm, so the mm-hmm. IEA has talked a lot about the cost of capital in emerging markets right, and that that's being, right. that slowing investment. 
you talk to develop economic development people from the global south and they say like we need bulk investment and part of bulk investment is just like power systems right or energy generally and so it's interesting to me that the climate people the economic development people on both sides of the global north and the global south kind of see this problem and yet it is quite vexing it seems to solve right so i I totally agree and i think i think you know the discussion how to for example how to finance energy transition it remains directly related to discussions around the ability for developing countries to simply access climate finance for both mitigation and adaption so in order to ensure that their future economic development can be based on low carbon energy sources and, and and made more resilient to a climate change it's also directed to the ability to scale up existing clean investments while ensuring that these investments can be competitive versus fossil fuel-based alternatives. And I think this is where right. the issue is, not the availability of capital per se. There's plenty of capital for renewable projects. I mean, there's plenty, right? But the issue is <laughs> where we think visualize in the, the lack of what I call bankable or investable projects right. versus uninvestable projects, especially in the developing economies. And, and so I think I think that's probably where there's a disconnect. The other disconnect worth mentioning is we see a gap in project preparation. I mean, the years of work required to develop and de-risk a project to bring it to the stage of, again, bankability. And this requires tackling a host of project implementation hurdles, like meeting environmental, social, economic needs. Then that's even before construction can begin. And and so one program capable of bringing scale to project development is the, you you may think it's been discussed before, the Global Infrastructure Facilities, the GIF, an effort Mm -hmm. of the World Bank backed by countries like Canada, Germany, Japan. And what it does is provide advisory and funding support to emerging markets and developing economies, governments, through this sort of multilateral schemes. Now, funding from the GAF has led to $340 of private sector financing for every dollar spent on project development, underscoring the significant multiplier effect of its impact. And programs like this, I personally think, can be hugely scared up on the road to COP28 and beyond for greater impact. And as a person who's in the private capital world, Mm -hmm. right, and trying to and thinking about how that big pool of capital is going to get steered, those mechanisms to you, do we need to see more of them? Do they need to work better? Or is it simply a matter of we're going to go up and to the right as we make progress and and, and we can kind of meet the challenges Mm -hmm. instead of like a wholesale reimagining of international finance, as an example? You're absolutely right to highlight. You know, at the end of the day, it's got to make money. Mm-hmm. I hate to sound like a capitalist, but ultimately, you know, people invest; <laughs> they want a return, and yeah. that return is being diminished by higher rates and then project costs issues. We then have to think about the comparable pricing of of all yeah. the jewels, right? Again, so we you know we we look at every every jewel, every energy source, whether it's oil, gas, LNG, yeah. coal, and and when you start doing a comparison. What could end up emerging is then you start to think about, well, if the marginal buyer of that jewel, so to speak, is coming from the EM world, they're going to look for who's got the marginal supply of that jewel, right? Now, if the yep. marginal supply of that jewel cannot be funded with an economic return, then they're just they're going to go hunting jewels, right? right? Whatever they are, right? Because right. you don't want power cuts, right? You don't want economic social regime changes. So, so okay, so I'm hunting jewels. I'm going to price it. So how much does coal cost? How much does oil cost? How much does gas cost? How much does renewables cost? And mm-hmm. I think ultimately with your sort of, you know, sort of with a sort of private sector hat on, the, the question then becomes, what's the relative competition in terms of pricing of the entire slate of energies? 
And right. you know, my concern is that if 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 ultimately oil becomes cheaper than renewables, right, in the sense that it's available, a and b, it's there, it's physical, I right. can get it, versus the comparable in renewables or other sources, then you may find that out of necessity, there are these countries who are trying to grow their economies and, and, and grow their energy consumption, choose the most available, cheapest fuel, whatever it may be. And that's sort of, it's, I think, really important in the context of thinking about the economics of all these projects. Right. You know, regardless of, even if we're wrong and there's trillions more dollars around and it's all going to be low interest rates, is it just physically possible to actually implement that? Right, right. I mean, I do actually want to talk about particularly the oil market, gas too. Mm -hmm. I know that's kind of your background. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on on the point you just made, right? Sort of pe people are going to, demand will follow relatively inexpensive jewels with some other considerations in mind and it, and its interaction with your with your super cycle hypothesis. So one, maybe right. a brief description of the hypothesis and then and then how you kind of think about think about it affecting that decision in the over the coming decade. But also just mm -hmm. Consumption of oil and gas is still growing, and the the supply picture has really changed over the last year post the invasion of Ukraine. So, kind right. of your sense of market conditions and outlook would be really helpful for our listeners to hear, given everything we've already talked about. Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right, and I think when when we think about the quadrilemma, which I sort of well, how I referenced this sort of policy, time, systems, and generation, and we and we've done all this bottom up work to sort of you know, with again the best intentions to see how much clean energy we can provide and to, and then deliver to the consumer. When when we did that work, one of the most sort of very clear takeaways was that we're short energy. How do we close that energy? And then we think, well, what fuel, what jewel is there plenty of in terms of generation? Well, you know, all of them. But the key point was, well, what fuel is available from a systems perspective? As in, we can deliver it, we can ship it existing infrastructures, actually pipelines, it's fungible. It's, it's got a high energy uh, density. Remember, you know, for example, oil barrels 14 times, you know, the, the, the energy intensity of a comparable clean energy fuel. It's important if, you know, if you're going to the desert, you'd want to have the most energy you can provide on, on, on in, in case, if, if, if that makes sense. So, so then we realized that the way this deficit will be closed, most likely is through greater consumption of oil. Again, not because People want to. It's just well, I need to close this deficit. How do I do it? You know, right. I just don't have the systems ready to, to penetrate a clean energy framework. And then it sort of think well, from that perspective, you know, having sort of taken an ecosystem view on energy rather than going down one particular fuel, we then arrived at our supercycle analysis, which shows well, if the lowest common denominator, if, if we're effectively having to consume oil because there is no other option in terms of closing the energy deficit and consumption of energy will continue. We don't have the available supply of that oil, particularly given the underinvestments and, and the points I made earlier. Last year, we saw China's oil demand shrink year on year for the first time since 1990, and when China was actually net exporter. And China is a very important economy, which you know, we didn't see demand decrease ever, in, in, even in 2020. So in response to that, what's happening at the moment is that we're now looking at who's got the barrels. So I've sort of coined this phrase, show me the barrels. Right. If you try and look for them, where are they? So we, we we're looking for jewels, we're hunting jewels. Recognize that we can't get enough in clean. Okay, let's go to the hydrocarbon jewels, and and ultimately oil barrels are ultimately the the the, the kind of the, the main source. And it's interesting when you look at OPEC and its key members. 
they've had to make a number of production export cuts, and these cuts have been partly offset by you know release of US SBRs, rising right. production from Iran, Libya, and Venezuela. But what's important is we see that these supply sources are reaching their limits. Okay, mm. which essentially sort of firing all the bullets, and these invent- inventories at the moment they are being drawn down. So I think Saudi has been very successful in helping reduce the excess, which was the primary goal of these cuts. And at the same time, production in the sanctioned countries are reaching their maximum capacities. So we don't see much upside without additional investments. We're exhausting all those options. And I think that's the key point then is, well, then what does that translate to in terms of how to deliver future production against future demand growth without risking oil prices moving significantly Higher. Now, historically, mm-hmm. and I think this is the major point, if you think on a 50-year view, or maybe that's too too much of a horizon, 30-year view, the before and after over the last 30 years is shale. Yeah. Shale has been a, a key component to ultimately cheap money plus productivity gains that we've, you know, we haven't, I've never seen in my career in, on, on, oil, mm-hmm. on oil basins meant that U.S. production is expected to reach about 12.8 million barrels this year. This is about 850,000 barrels higher than last year. And next year is forecast to increase, however, by 330. So my biggest concern is that U.S. shell growth is slowing down. Interesting. And clearly, when you then compound that with a high cost of debt, higher interest rates, and also, quite frankly, a lot of banks are not underwriting shale like they used to, right? Because it's that's not where they want to be. Yeah. Fiscal discipline and, right. and 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 it's energy. also oil. It's oil, yeah. right? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm I'm investing. I'm, I'm helping finance clean energy. You're you know you're a shale company, right? And all that put together means that we're seeing potentially significant slowdown in shale growth. And and the reason I call that a before and after is when you start seeing a slowdown in shale growth, which effectively is the marginal supply of oil, they call the marginal cost. Mm-hmm. The concern for me is then all roads lead back to where the spare capacity is, which clearly isn't OPEC. But yep. the bigger concern is that OPEC spare capacity is low, you know, mm. roughly 4 to 4.2 million barrels. And it's mainly consolidated in Saudi at 3.2 million barrels and, and, and obviously some in the UAE. So OPEC, and particularly Saudi, is going to be ultimately the driving seat in the second half of this decade, as we predicted in our super cycle thesis. And Saudi will ultimately want to ensure that they 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 take a, tighten the grip around oil price volatility and right. take a greater share of demand growth. But you can see where we started with an energy supply demand outlook. We then drill down to where are the jewels. We then drill down even further to, well, we're short jewels. Where are the fuels that are available to fill that deficit? And we landed in oil. But the reality is that we are very tight in terms of supply demand for oil right. over the medium term, which will then see potentially much higher prices and exacerbate energy inflation even more. I want to delve into this a little bit. One question I have for you is, do you kind of think that these dynamics of lots of future uncertainty and demand, a slightly different financial picture just means like prices are going to be higher, maybe even outside of a super cycle dynamic, but it's just going to cost more to produce oil because there's a lot of risk in that game. And Mm -hmm. OPEC really wants revenue to fund economic diversification and other things. What's your sense of of kind of future market conditions under the the near term outlook? Sorry, not well, a well-posed question. Well, no, no, I see what I see what you mean. I mean, well, the risk that we have is prices go up, but in every cycle, 
and it is a cycle. Prices go up, and every, and they stay higher, and up back into the curve moves higher, and everyone goes great. Industry's back. Let's invest, and right. capex goes up, and you know it's a it's a bonanza again. And the risk, the key risk here, is that that the elasticity to high price, in plain English, people's investment appetite to get involved in oil, is muted. Right. Right. Because they say, well, I've already told my shareholders that I'm going to invest yeah. in clean energy. Or I've told my shareholders I'm going to return 30% of my market cap, and they love it. So I can't. I could, I'm just constrained. Yeah. Or I'm trying to raise the money, but I can't because the banks are all shut. Right. It, it, it comes back to that, that axis policy. What is yeah. policies approach to investing in hydrocarbons? So so what you end up with then is, is a cycle that's sort of effectively broken. You know, yeah. you know, the laws of supply demand. You know, the, the best answer to high prices is high prices because you, people right. invest on high prices, right? The, and 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 the issue here is that you have high prices compounding higher prices because ultimately there's no economic impetus to to, to see that supply response as we right. transition away from that supply, and then, mm-hmm. and that then potentially creates uh, very large deficits in energy, uh, which create mm-hmm. very volatile prices particularly in oil, and we sort of lose control of those prices simply because we just don't have enough supply elasticity. And just to be really clear, Joe, right. we don't have a shortage of oil in the ground. There's plenty. Right. Yeah. The shortage is the capital to get that oil above right. the ground and flowing. I, this is really interesting, right? And it's like, as you know, it's like for all policymakers, this is a mm. really sensitive issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oil prices are like a key indicator of success for presidents here in the United States. Like it or not, mm. they don't have a lot of control over it. One sure. thing we did see over the last couple of years is the U.S. deployed the SPR in a totally yes, unprecedented indeed. way to help manage yep. those. A million barrels a day for for months on end to try and stabilize markets and keep prices down. You know, Do you see the, the U.S. or other consuming countries as playing a larger market influence role? If, if there is going to be, for in this future of like, higher volatility you know they don't have the volumes to last forever but is there sort of a high frequency smoothing that can be done using these strategic mm. reserves uh, us has done a, a great job as sort of mitigating some of this price inflation as it rolls out the ira and delivers on the energy transition and obviously leads on the energy transition in many ways having said that you know USSPR is a finite resource and they release a significant volume of barrels over the course of 18 months, what's tricky is how do you rebuild those SPRs? And clearly it's going to take several years to do so, which then leaves it in a slightly sort of precarious position in the context of, well, how do you put a lid on price, particularly the the petrol pump price, what you guys call the gas price in the US, when you've sort of exhausted a significant component of your major mitigating factor? And, and, And clearly, historically, that would have been shale, right? Go drill more. Right. And I think there's a sort of one question I get a lot, Joe, is well, if we're sort of running relatively low on USSBRs, obviously they can release more, but again, it's a finite resource. It's just, it's just not going to run out, right? Then what about if you were to say, well, let, you know, let's just tell all the shale companies, you know what, you've got an open season, you can drill as much as you want. We're not going to stop you. Now, the issue is two things one is productivity, the second is access to money. Both of those things in the last 10 years were much easier. So productivity, you know, when shale was sort of growing in the late part of, the, sort of 2007, eight, you had productivities yeah. per well that are 
significantly higher than where they are today. And, and, and that's a normal, natural course of a basin in productivity slows. Ultimately, these, these, these reserves are growing up in, 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 sort of in layman terms. And what I think people often forget is they also did a lot of fracking and a lot of damage to these wells. I mean, mm-hmm. you often so we overlook this point that, I mean, reserves need to be optimized very carefully. And in yeah. my career, I've never seen a situation where prices or prices go up, and the amount of production that was coming from this was 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 nothing I'd seen before across any right. well or barrel in the world. Why? Because they were aggressively drilling and fracking. But the consequence of that is that productivity has 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 come down significantly. Right? You've actually affected your long-term productivity. The trick is to manage your reserves over multiple years rather than just drill, 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 produce, produce, and then see what happens later. So that's had a major knock-on effect, which is so important because with all the money in the world, yeah. a change in policy, you can't throw magic dust on these barrels to produce higher productivity. It's coming down. And so the marginal cost is going up. The price needed to actually develop these these barrels. And that compounds the same investment problems that we've been talking about. Right. And then obviously we have access to capital. I mean, interest rates are right. high. Yep. Everyone has a different view where they are. But ultimately, you know, as a house, we believe that rates will stay higher for longer. Yep. And therefore, what you've done is compound, so at least from a sort of US perspective, when it, you know, in the context of energy security, the limitations, the restrictions around future supply of their own resource um, within the country which then potentially makes them more dependent on other countries to provide uh, oil supply because shale is ultimately not not delivering what what, what it had before. Good. Before we close, I do want to ask you about methane and emissions intensity in in oil and gas markets. Mm -hmm. As we look forward to COP, this is a big issue for industry, for governments, for for civil society. Seems like this is a place where the international climate cooperation can score some wins. Right. But this is also a place where like the economics do kind of need to work, right? So good methane controls can reduce emissions, intensity of oil and gas production. US is doing a lot of good stuff in this regard. Regulations are on the way in Europe. But like traders and buyers, I think, are still getting used to this as mm-hmm. a concept, something they would discriminate by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's your view on on kind of the next steps for methane and methane controls within energy markets themselves? Well, it's a great place to, to close, actually, because, of course, where energy and climate goals often come into tension is that there's more joules of energy generally and more tons of emissions. And that's right. why minimizing methane emissions and flaring is a rare and huge opportunity. It's about distributing more of those joules the system generates by reducing the waste of a natural resource while simultaneously curbing those emissions to, to make oil and gas lower carbon. I know it sounds a little bit crazy, yeah. so lower carbon oil and gas, but there's a huge uh, upside in reducing or decarbonizing hydrocarbons in yep. terms of its impact. At JP Morgan, we've highlighted methane abatement as an actionable solution, for example, and one that requires more financing for the industry, not less. And mm. this also fares quite well on the, the sort of time axes that I referred to earlier of the energy quadrilemma from the energy outlook. as Technology and operational solutions not only exist, but can generally be deployed rapidly, for example, leak detection and repair. So this is a really good, tangible opportunity to accelerate and the sky's the limit. And this isn't just transforming the system over decades with massive capex. It's also optimizing the system. We have proficiencies 
in in the year years ahead. So I think Joe, to increase the market's focus on methane, when I think about sort of basic ingredients in information, incentive, and demand, and what I mean by right. that is information has been a barrier, but that's changing as methane satellites exist and other technologies disruptions come to market. You can end up with like a Google map equivalent of methane, where you can just zoom mm. into a postcode and you can see what is the meth- what is the methane of that postcode anywhere in the world, right? right? That's significant yep. technology that can be harnessed. And then the incentives. So I'd look first to natural gas importing regions with decarbonization commitments. Those that need both the gas and the near-term climate progress from reduced operational emissions in their supply chain. And then mm-hmm. finally, in the, the question here is of demand. You know, yep. which, which actors step up to express a preference or requirement for low carbon gas and how do they balance that with ensuring security of supply? That's probably yep. where the, the prevailing tension is going to emerge in the mm. future. Excellent. I could talk for hours, but I think we're out of time. As we dial back and we look at these factors, generation, mm. policy, system, time. Man, we're real short on time. We're, generation needs to be unlocked. Systems need to be built. And, and public policy has a, an active role to play. Any final comments on on where you think marginal efforts are are the most helpful or mm. or can we can get in our own way yeah it's a great great question to, to round up on um, I'd, I'd reiterate system 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 you know mm. we need more jewels clear the world's growing yeah but more importantly we need the energy system to deliver those jewels from where they're produced to where they're needed and i think the rise of electrification and renewables this means increased grids energy storage solutions and investments across the supply chains of all the key min- minerals and materials, like especially metals. And I think that's yeah. probably where the, bot, the the bottleneck exists. It's also the biggest opportunity yep. from, from, a, from a private sector perspective, but it clearly also could end up becoming one of the largest oversights, right? Because we've got mm. plenty of wind, plenty of sun, we're doing all the renewables generation, and we, right. we fail to really appreciate the quantum, the scale of systems that are needed and sort of, if you look at the blind spot, if you like, Joe, would be that then, as a result, we see significant in energy price inflation, and we're wondering what, why we're investing all this stuff. How come? I don't understand. It's because we can't right. get it to the consumer, and therefore they've got to find an alternative. Very interesting, Christian. I really thank you for spending the time with us today. Your perspective is is interesting, sometimes provocative, and I really appreciate the depth of analysis that you and your team do. So thanks again. Appreciate that. Very kind of you. Thanks. Thanks to Christiane for joining us this week. We really appreciate his perspective on the energy markets and the challenges policymakers and the private sector are facing as they develop our energy future. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. For updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.